Father, that you delight to answer these prayers. You've said that the, the prayer of the righteous is your delight. And we just heard about that beautiful picture of what you were doing for us with your righteousness being offered with our prayers and just how it's this pleasing fragrance. Father, as we look a little more closely at that this morning, I just ask that you would move on our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly, that we'd fall more in love with you this morning, that we would really come to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We ask for this as a gift that only you can give in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was a pitch black night. Gunfire was rattling across the field. There were some bushes in the middle of the field and crouched in the middle of the bushes, laying on their stomachs, were two girls. One was about the age of 19, the other was a similar age. The gunfire was going back and forth across the field. They knew that there was somebody in the middle of that no man's land. And as she lay there, the question that came to Maria's mind was, if I die now, what was the point of my life? Why did I come into existence? Why am I here? Was this all for nothing? And for Maria to have come to this place was the exact opposite of what her foster mom had hoped would take place for Maria because Maria had been, first of all, she had been in her home of origin. She was the third youngest, she was the third girl to be born in her home which in Czechoslovakia, in a German community, this was a shame to her father that he had had no sons by his wife. And as his wife looked at the father and realized that he was upset that this was a third girl, in fact, he went over and looked in the crib and he said, oh, yuck, another girl. She thought to herself, if I die, these three girls are going to become orphans. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened to Maria and her sisters. Her mom passed away when she was young, and they were taken in by a foster family who wanted to take care of them, but who was very poor themselves. And she ended up living in a hayloft, scrounging for food, barely able to survive. She lived through winters, sometimes not having shoes. She says that today her toes are curled so much from all of that exposure. She went through all of this. So you can imagine as she got older and she was in school when suddenly something happened. An army came across the mountains from Germany. It was after World War I and that's why they were in such difficult times. And along came Hitler's army. World War II was starting. And as they came into their village, they said, we're here to make everything better for you. And at first, things really seemed to be like that. They began to make things a little bit better for them. They were able to have a little more food. And then one day, Maria was at school when a representative came, and they did some testing, and and they were choosing girls who were going to be taken off to be trained to be part of Hitler's youth. Can you imagine, out of all the girls that they would choose there, she was the the poor girl. She was the lowest of the low. She didn't seem like she had anything. But you imagine what it felt like to her when she was chosen to be a part of Hitler's youth. So they, they said, 
you are the one. And, and her whole village was excited and cheering her on as she was going to the train. And everybody was excited except for her foster mom, who had taken her in in the hopes of teaching her about Jesus. She didn't let it be known. She cheered on the outside. But as her daughter was taken away in the train, Maria said she reached out after me and she said, Maria, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. I think that's what God wants us to remember in the days that we're living in because Hebrews 7.25 says that we have a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. That means he is ever working for our salvation. And we learned last week about that, didn't we? We look at Zechariah chapter 6. And in Zechariah chapter 6, if you remember, it said that there was a man who would come by the name of Branch and that he would be both a priest and a king and that there would be a council of peace between them. And we learn that Jesus isn't the only one who's working for our salvation, but the Father himself loves us, as John 16 verse 27 says. And not only does he love us, but that's a a love used there in... Now, we always have to remember, when we're looking at the Greek, we have to remember that this is the way that John is writing. He's writing to an audience that speaks Greek. When Jesus spoke, he spoke in Aramaic. So he may not have used these words, but this is a message that John is trying to communicate. And that is that he uses the word phileo, which is a familiar uh, form of love, rather than just that selfless, other-centered love that God has. And we looked at it and we said, God likes us. God actually likes you. That's what he's all about, is you. And Maria's mom didn't want her to forget about Jesus. And Jesus didn't want his disciples to forget about him. Look at John chapter 17. If you go to John chapter 17, we've been looking at this, and this is the high priestly prayer. This is as close as it gets to really understanding how Jesus and the Father have this council of peace together. We don't have another place where we see what his high priestly prayer looks like. But here in John chapter 17, we get this picture into that most holy place experience where Jesus and the Father are talking about you and me and about your salvation and my salvation and about how they can bring you into fellowship with them throughout eternity. And we looked last week at verse 11. We were focusing on how it talked about the name being a special thing that he wants to guard us with. And remember, we looked at Moses and how he was... He saw God's character revealed, and he said, I'm going to declare my name to you. I'm merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and sin, and also a God of justice, not clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity on the third and the fourth generation. Verse 11, we pick it up. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. He's concerned. Are they going to forget about me? I'm not going to be in the world any longer. Father, I'm concerned about their salvation. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. 
And we saw how recognizing the character of God, recognizing his love for us, lifts our hearts up to God. That prayer isn't something where we're coming and we're trying to convince God to come down to us. It's not like God is a heavenly vending machine where if we come up with the right coinage in our prayers, that we can put that into the vending machine and down will come the answers that we're hoping for. No! God says, my glory to Moses is is my goodness. And my goodness is to give. Jesus revealed this again and again and again in his life. And so he says, keep them and keep them by my name, my character. Keep their eyes focused on who I am. And that will make all the difference for them. Then verse 12. Now that's, that's really the first request that he makes. He's asking God to keep them in, the, in his name. And then verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. I kept revealing to the disciples when they were discouraged, when they didn't see the way forward. I kept showing them that this is your character. I have revealed who you are to the disciples. And that's what gave them peace in the middle of that storm. That's what gave them peace when the demoniac came coming out. That's what gave them authority when they went out to preach because I was there with them. And God, keep them in that experience. Those whom you gave me I have kept and none of them is lost except the Son of God of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Something interesting to look up is that term perdition, and you see that later on this is used to to refer to the last day apostasy where the church has gone away from God. And again, we see the son of perdition popping up. But this is talking specifically about Judas. And then notice verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. God wants your joy to be overflowing as you're kept in his name, as you're kept focused on who he is and his matchless love for you. That he actually likes you. That he wants to save you. That Luke 10, 32 says it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Then it goes on to say in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, at first this is sounding like, oh, this is just euphoric. This is wonderful. This is peace and joy. And, and wait a second. The world's going to hate us? Why will it hate us if we're loving the world? Why will there... Uh, what's going on here? And then he goes on to say in verse 14, I have given them your, world, your word and the world has hated them. Sorry, verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to take them out of this experience where they are enduring hatred, where there's an enemy after them, where there is, last week, one of you came up to me and said, you know, are you ever going to talk about the other lion? And we have talked about the other lion. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, you have an adversary, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So, Jesus here is is saying, don't just take them out of the world, but then it goes on to say, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now it's interesting here in Greek when it says the evil one, it could be talking about specifically Satan because in 1 John 5, 19, it uses this exact uh, wording except for with a masculine form in the Greek to refer to Satan. Or it could just be referring to all evil here because it's, uh, I believe it's in the neuter form. So 
It doesn't say exactly the word one there. It just says the evil. Keep them from the evil. So what does this look like? What does this look like in our practical experience? And how do we experience this for ourselves? I want you to go back to to Luke chapter 22 because the good thing is that, that Jesus in his life gave us examples of how this prayer can be experienced. Luke chapter 22, and we'll look at verse 31. This is just after the disciples are in the upper room. Their feet have been washed. They've received the cup of communion. They've received the bread. They've had Judas walk out, and they now know that he's something. He went to do something. And Jesus is, is, has said a lot of things that have made them troubled. And suddenly, in verse 24, it says this, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. They are there in this beautiful moment where they should be learning from Jesus about servitude, about humility, that the king of the universe has come down to wash their feet, and yet they're arguing about who is the greatest. And down in verse 31, I think it gives us a picture of Who is the root cause of this? We first of all see that one of the disciples was a problem. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. I think Peter may have been behind some of what was going on here. Peter was the one who was always speaking up. Peter kind of felt like the leader of the bunch. Maybe he felt like he was the greatest or maybe he was instigating this argument. But then it says this, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Interesting language there, huh? He's like saying, he's using agricultural language where they would take the wheat and they would put it into these sifters and the chaff would be separated from the grains. And he's saying, he's trying to separate you from me. He doesn't want the two of us together. He's trying to sift you from being one of my disciples. He gives this picture that there's something going on behind the scenes. And it's important for us to remember this. Because we talk about how God has this incredible love for us. And we need to recognize that that love goes to protective measures in our lives. Because there is an enemy who wants to hurt us. And Jesus actually says, and it's, it's heartbreaking to think, when you, you know that what he's doing in heaven is a council of peace, that he has your salvation in mind, he says that broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are on that way, but narrow is the way, and few there are who find it as the way of salvation. That's the heartbreaking thing that Jesus says. So, so how is that even possible when it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, when he loves us this much, There's an enemy. And Jesus points out this enemy here and says, Simon, you're arguing about greatness. You you think that you're one of my disciples. You think that you have my good in mind. You think that you're thinking about my kingdom and and how you guys are going to advance that. Well, who's going to be in charge? And how are we going to run this new kingdom when we drive the Romans out? And you don't realize that you're sitting right here with me And Satan is wanting to sift you like wheat. You don't know how deceived you really are. You feel like you're part of my group, but the enemy is after you. Thankfully, it doesn't end there. 
Because verse 32 says this, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Friends, this is a picture of what prayer is all about because Jesus is our example. He emptied himself of all of his prerogatives as the, the second person of the Godhead. He emptied himself of those rights and privileges while he walked among us. He veiled his divinity with humanity. And he prayed just like you and I can pray. And he prays for somebody that's close to him because he recognizes in that person's life that Satan is after him. He sees as, as Peter is, is instigating them arguing about who's the greatest. He sees the pride in Peter's life. He sees as Peter is so confident that he can get through whatever trial he's going to face. And he, he looks at him and he says, Peter, son, the devil wants to sift you, but I'm praying for you. And we find again and again that Jesus would go out early in the morning. He would go out all night long and he would be earnestly praying And what was he praying for? For himself? No. He didn't need to be there to confess his sins. He didn't need to be there. And he did need to receive grace and power from the Father. But he was praying for his disciples. And in John 17, it goes on to show us that he was praying for those that would believe through his disciples. He was praying for you that your faith would not fail. And as your intercessor in heaven, he's praying for you today that your faith will not fail. Now, Peter hears this in verse 33. He says, but he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. I'm all in. You don't have to worry about me. Go pray for somebody else. You know, there's a a group uh, of pastors that I get together with in Atascadero to pray with sometimes. And sometimes we go around the circle and we'll share prayer requests. And there's one guy who guaranteed will say, I'm good. I don't need any prayer. I don't know about you, but there is always something that I need prayer for in my life. And I don't mean to to judge him because he probably has other people that are praying for him and he probably has a wonderful prayer life. But it's important that we recognize our desperate need for God. Because, you know, Maria, as she went off into Germany and she began to be trained, she began to be taught something that that sounded good to her. They told her that the supreme being has chosen us. We are the chosen race. We are Germans. And Germans are going to take over the world and deal a death blow to evil. And we are going to set up this beautiful kingdom. And we will be led by Hitler. And Hitler became like a god too the Nazi youth. And within one year, she says, as they told me this day in and day out and they trained me and they, they, they gave me so many things that I had never experienced as a young girl, it seemed so wonderful, it seemed so good to me that I rose higher and higher in the ranks of the Nazi youth and I became one of the highest ranking and I exchanged, she actually has a book called I Changed God's. She went from having Jesus as a God in her life to now having Hitler as her Savior. 
She was looking to a man to see her through. And, and Peter is looking to a man to see him through. He believes that, that he has what it takes. He thinks, I can do this. Jesus, don't worry. I'm going with you to death. I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to be there with you. You don't have to worry about me. But Jesus knows the truth. <clears throat> it won't be long until Peter denies the Savior that he loves so much. And he wants for Peter to know something. I've been praying for you. And those prayers are going to be answered. Look at the faith that Jesus had in verse 32. He says, and when you have returned, when he uses that word returned, it's the same word that Peter later uses in Acts chapter 3 when he's preaching. And he says, repent. He says, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That word for converted is the exact word that Jesus uses here saying, when you're converted, when you turn back, when you experience a change in your life, when, not if, when you come back to me, Peter, because I have prayed for you. He has confidence in what that prayer will do. How does Jesus have that kind of confidence in his prayers? There is a back room scene to prayer. Did you know that? There is something going on in the great controversy when we pray. God has designed for you and I to have a special experience here on planet earth. If you look back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, in the very beginning, God speaking to Adam and Eve said for them to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have, do you remember what it says? Dominion over it. He set up this planet as a place for them to have a kingdom of their own. He, he didn't just set it up so that he could control absolutely every detail, but he said, I want for you to go and to have rulership over this planet. I'm giving you choice. I'm giving you this opportunity. Love always takes that. Try to enter into a relationship without the freedom of choice. It doesn't work very well. <laughs> Try to hold somebody in a loving relationship with you at gunpoint and see how long they truly love you and how freely they're willing to give you their love. It doesn't work very well. But God gave them this choice from the very beginning and they gave it away because they believed a lie. They believed a lie that was sold to them by that serpent, the devil, as Revelation chapter 12 tells us, who, who told them, God doesn't have your good in mind. God isn't, doesn't want what's best for your life. What you want is to become like God. You want to choose this experience for yourself that he has withheld from you because he's not really good. He's actually holding something back from you. Maria began to believe that about God as she was taught by her captor, or her they weren't captors exactly, but by the Nazis that the Bible was not trustworthy. She was told that she couldn't follow the instructions that God had given her, that these things weren't good, that they weren't reliable, that she shouldn't live her life by these things. And she totally believed it. She said, I was what you would use in your English terminology, brainwashed completely. I bought into this whole system. But then things began to fall apart. And as things began to fall apart, she ran 
uh, north into, and she was eventually part of a prison camp where she was totally mistreated by Russian soldiers. She wasn't mistreated as much as those within uh, her, her cell were, were mistreated. But as she watched the abuse going on, she began to have this disenchantment with all that communism was doing. She began to recognize that it wasn't so good, that it wasn't so beautiful. And it wasn't long for Adam and Eve when they finally recognized, hey, this is not so good. In fact, when God comes to them in the garden, they run and they hide. And then God says, why did you hide? And they say, we were naked. And, and God says to them, who told you you were naked? Who gave you this self-focus? Who, who led you to this, this lie about me? And they point immediately. Adam points to Eve. Eve points to the serpent. And there is the most beautiful promise in Genesis, I believe. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Go there with me. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Because it tells us something crucial about what's going on in the great controversy. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice, if he is going to put enmity between Satan and the woman, that is because there's friendship between Satan and woman. There's identification. They have, the thoughts of the enemy have become their own thoughts. They have accepted another ruler. And Satan runs full force with this. As you look in the book of Job, in Job chapter 1, read it this afternoon, when God, it says, has this counsel of the sons of God, it says that Satan comes among them. That he comes from somewhere and he, he comes to this council where they're all coming together. So they're all coming from different parts of God's realm. And as he comes to that, that, that council, God says to him, where do you come from? He says, well, I come from roaming around on the, the earth, walking to and fro on the earth. When you get a piece of property, what do you usually do if you get a big piece of property? You get it, you buy it, and you go and you walk the property, right? It's your property. You, you walk and you look over all the parts of it. When the Israelites went into the land of Canaan, they walked throughout the land, and everywhere that they put their foot, that was their property. Satan's saying, this is my planet. These people are mine. But God says, what about Job? Have you, you considered Job? He's not yours. <laughs> He's a righteous man. And then there's something beautiful there. It says, God, God talking about Job uh, you know, says, have you, have you considered Job? And then Satan says, well, of course he serves you. Have you not put a hedge about him? And what do you think that's referring to? You think it's referring to like some bushes that were planted around Job? It's talking about God's protection in his life, right? It's talking about how there is, as it says in Psalm chapter 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. There's protection that takes place in our lives. In this room right now, there's us sitting in this pew, in our pews, and there's, there's some of us standing, there's some of us in, in the kitchen cooking, but we're not all that's here. According to the Bible, 
Matthew 18 and verse 10 says that each little child, their angel is always beholding the face of the Father in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? There's a guardian angel with each child. And, and I believe there's a guardian angel with each and every one of us. That, that there is a presence here. There is a battle going on. And we have protection from God. That's the crucial thing to understand is that, that Satan tries and he comes and he seeks to sift us as wheat. He tries to get in because he claims authority on this planet. And the question is, who has our allegiance? Who has our allegiance today? Do we give authority to the enemy, or do we give authority to the kingdom of God? Because Peter thought that he had given full allegiance to Jesus, but he hadn't. There was still selfishness in his heart. There was still that pride in his heart. He still thought that I can handle this on my own. And you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, actually 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, that we're warned about a God of this world and what he is trying to do to us. It's the exact thing that happened to Maria. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, that terminology is from chapter 3 where it refers to that veil that Moses had put over his face so that that beautiful glory that represented the character of God that was shining out of his face, that was terrifying to the people, so that that wouldn't shine out. That veil was over his face. Here it says, the gospel is veiled. Why? I need to find it again. Verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Let that sink in just for a second. There is a possibility that we could be sitting here and we could be totally blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though we're sitting in church. And I don't want that to be the reality for me. I don't want it to be the reality for you. It was the reality for Peter. Peter ran away from Jesus because he thought that Jesus' kingdom was about force, that it was about establishing something there, and he was willing to follow him if it went along with what he wanted. But when it turned out that God was going to humble himself to the point of death, that he was going to go to the cross, Peter said, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. But the beautiful thing is that it was that very moment that was changing absolutely everything. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Because up until this point, the enemy did have some sort of authority. He did have some sort of domain over us. But in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, it says this about about, uh, Christ. Verse 15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, 
he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So that on the cross, as Jesus went to the cross, as he died there, as he laid down his life, he triumphed over these principalities, these powers, all that assails us in our lives, that we feel like holds us captive. All of the selfishness, all of the evil on this planet. He says, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. How? What does that look like? What did he do that, that led to such a, a transformation in our experience? Revelation chapter 12 depicts something very similar taking place, and it depicts it from the side of what's taking place with the enemy. In verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. If you want to learn more about the accuser, write down right now, first of all, Job chapter 1 and then Zechariah chapter 3. Read those this afternoon. Amazing chapters where you see what, Job do, what Satan does as the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Something changed for all of the universe as God displayed himself on the cross. You see, sometimes we look to the cross and we see, well, there's the Son. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so displayed on the cross is who God is. And Satan had lied to all of us by telling us that, that we should go higher, that we should put ourselves up, that we should seek our good first. And sometimes you might think about that in my life. If, if I don't watch out for, for me, who's going to do it? I'm going to be a doormat. Nobody's going to take care of me. Who's going to take care of my needs? Jesus will. <laughs> when you go down, you can trust in Jesus taking care of you. And Jesus has given us this, this experience like Leo has talked about in prayer meeting of just going down step by step by step. Seven different steps listed there in Philippians chapter 2 all the way to the point of death on a cross. So if you think about it, God is love. That's why he created. That's, first of all, why there is a trinity, so that there's three who could be not only communing with each other, but also sharing that communion. It's the perfect number in order for there to be love. But God loved to such an extent that he couldn't keep that love within himself, and so he created. And this creation, you and me, we are enabled to be in the image of God, but we have the choice of whether or not to stay within God's kingdom, the kingdom of love. God's kingdom is based on his law, and his law is based on love. And so to violate his law is to violate who God is. So I want you to think about that. What really takes place when I sin, have you thought about that before? What does it really mean when sin takes place in my life? When Adam and Eve took that fruit and it said, you shall surely die. They didn't die. 
But what took place on that very day? There was a sacrifice that took place. They were clothed with skins. And it says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus, from the very beginning, knew that He could allow us to go on living even though we had chosen to be separated from love, from life. He had, we have chosen that, yeah, that's a nice system, but we'd rather not have it. We've chosen to push away from that and to go on, and God has given us this probation, this experience to see what it really looks like, to work out all of those mysterious principles that Lucifer had come up with, that, that really God was being selfish in requiring us to love him. But in reality, he only wants us to love him so that he can love us and so that he can make the very best things possible in our life. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I love what it says about this experience in the, at the cross. In Desire of Ages, page 762, it says, God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. Let that sink in for just a second. He didn't sacrifice his law. He didn't say, okay, let's do away with the law. But instead, he let what we say each time we sin take place in that he died. He sacrificed himself. And God wants to set us free from the assumption that there's something good in sin. He wants to set us free from the blindness that the world gives us, that there's something attractive, something delicious about sin. He wants us to come to the place where we recognize that it's heinous because it kills God. It puts to death the Son of God on the cross. I want nothing to do with rejecting God's system anymore. And as we come to that recognition, there's a power that takes place even within our prayers. Desire of Ages goes on to say in page 761, Satan saw at the cross that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. At the cross, as Jesus revealed that this is who God is, that this is what his character does, it took away Satan's authority in your life. The truth will set you free. And if you know the Son, then you will be free indeed. Jesus prayed for you that you would be kept from the evil, that you would be kept away from these things, and you'll be kept as you behold the Lamb of God, as you look to the unselfish character, the love of God that would rather that you live than that He live. Maria, so disenchanted with the, the communist system, but she had no idea where she should go. 
somebody told her that she should just start to run. And so she left that prison camp and looking back on it, she has no idea how she got out of the prison camp without being shot. But as she left the prison camp, she began to go across Germany. And she says, a lot of times that you look at fleeing as something, uh, something grand and something exciting because you see it in a movie where you're fleeing in a BMW. He said, but that's not the way it works. She said, we were scrounging for food, which I knew how to find edible plants from starving as a kid. As we went across Germany, she said, we would spend nights out in the cold and, and it was a slow, steady progress across the country. As they neared West Germany, though, people began to tell them, well, you're going to get into trouble when you get to the, the demilitarized zone, no man's land. What are you going to do then? She said, no man's land, what is that? She's a 19-year-old girl who'd been raised in Hitler's army and Hitler was going to rule the world. She didn't know anything about no man's land. I said, well, that's where if you go across, the Russians, they're going to shoot you as you try to get to the Americans. Well, as they got closer and closer, finally, she and her friend that night, they had hired a ferryman who supposedly was going to be able to show them the way across. And as they were trying to get across in the middle of, of the field, suddenly the gunfire began to come. And in all the commotion, they got separated from that man and they ended up crouching beneath that bush in the middle of the field. When suddenly she heard a baby crying, and she heard that, that baby crying, or it was a one-and-a-half-year-old child, she, she went over and she grabbed the child, and they pulled him over, and they realized that she had somehow been separa- separated from her parents in the midst of this, this chaos. And so between the two of them, they said, okay, we're just going to go for it. We're going to keep going. Gunfire is going on, but they grabbed that child between them. The gunfire stopped for a moment, and they began to go across the field. And as they were, went, they were just waiting for that moment when the gunfire was going to start up again because they were out in plain sight now. But the gunfire didn't start again. And they kept going across. And finally, they were, they were out of distance of the, the guns and they were into the woods. And, and suddenly they saw this, this building. And she said, that, that must be another German home. And I'm going to at least just go there. They have never invited me into their home, but... I'm going to go and knock on the door and I'm just going to shove this one and a half year old in the door and say, take this baby. I don't need to stay, but take this baby. So she pounds on the door and as she pounds on the door, suddenly in an instant, the door flies open and she says that this was the most terrifying moment of her entire life as she looked up and saw what she had always dreaded. There was, as they had said, a huge American GI. They said they all eat too much, those Americans, and they're all overweight. And sure enough, the guy standing in the door was huge. And he was chewing bubble gum, and that's exactly what they told them. They all chew bubble gum. And here he was, this huge American chewing bubble gum, and she immediately said, don't kill me, don't kill me. And she was trying to get away from him as fast as she could, but he ushered her in and sat the two girls down and as they were sitting there, finally they, they had a translator come in and she was not believing their story that they were going to let them stay there. She kept trying to figure out how she and her friend could escape. But eventually they ushered them into this room and they put these two cots in there and they said, sleep here. And as she looked, she said to her friend, okay, you got to stay awake for a while and then I'll stay awake for a while. We'll take shifts because otherwise they're going to come and try to kill us in the middle of the night. So 
they laid, the one laid down and then promptly the other one fell asleep too. And suddenly there was a knock at the door and she screamed because she thought that they were going to be attacked. And the door opened and in came the cook. And he had this tray mounded with food. And as he came between the two of them, he set the tray down. And as they looked at the tray, they were delighted that they were going to get a little bit of food. But she said, oh, we probably got to wait until they finish eating so we can eat the crumbs. So her entire life, she had never eaten a meal like that before. And finally the guy said, eat, eat, eat. And she realized something. That was for them. They wanted to give her that. And she realized that the Nazis had been lying to her all along about who the Americans were. And as she ate that meal, she said her feelings about the Americans began to change a little, but she still didn't trust them. Maybe they were trying to bait her into trying to hurt her. And so when they finished the meal, she and the friend, they tried to sneak out. And as they were running past this building, all of a sudden, all of these 18, 19, 20-year-old guys inside this building are waving out the window and cheering for them as they run along. (laughs) She said, I didn't know what they were saying. She said, but in that moment, you couldn't have argued with me to tell me that they were good people. But in that moment, I suddenly realized that the Americans were who, not the Nazis said, but who they said that they were. Friends, God wants to reveal to us who he is. And it's keeping us in that name that's going to change everything for us. It says in the Mount of Blessings, uh, page 119, live in contact with the living Christ and he will hold you firmly by a hand that will never let go. Know and believe the love that God has to us and you are secure. When you know and believe the love that God has for you, you recognize his name, you're kept by that name, that will keep you from the evil one, as it goes on to say. That love, I should have a slide for this, it's later on. That love is a fortress impregnable to all the delusions and assaults of Satan. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Friends, there is a refuge for you. There is a shelter for you. And that is in recognizing who Jesus is to you. Do you know him today? Do you recognize his love for you? Are you kept from the evil one by his name? And friends, are you exercising the opportunity that Jesus wants for you to have in praying for others. Maria tells how she went on to want to go to America and eventually she was able to go to America. She said she had to learn about freedom and it changed everything for her as she realized that this was the way a government could operate, that they didn't have to tell her when to to move and when to not move. She realized that there could be power and freedom. It changed everything for her, she said. And then she found her mother. She found her foster mom who had told her, don't forget Jesus. And by this point, she had accepted Jesus again. And her foster mom said something to her. I prayed for you every single day. I prayed for you 
every day. Friends, there's a reason that Maria was able to escape from all of those things. She had somebody praying for her. And there is power in the great controversy in prayer because God is love and He gives us freedom that as we come to Him, we don't change who God is when we pray. We don't pray and say, God, would you do this? Because you wouldn't be willing to otherwise. But when we pray, angels fly. Because the enemy is bound. Because we are giving God permission on this planet. We are giving him dominion in our lives and in our hearts. And we're giving him dominion in the lives of others. And we're giving him permission to act. And I believe that's a huge part of what God is doing as Jesus offers our prayers. So often my prayers have come to God and they've been so selfish. I've prayed and I've said, God, would you please do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you? And I'm trying to command God to this and that and the other. And I think Jesus has to take that and he has to offer his righteousness with it, that belief in who God is and that loving character. He has to say, well, this is what Zach actually needs and means and wants. (laughs) He's not really saying that about you, God. Accept my sacrifice for him. Accept my love in his life. And he wants to lead us to the place where we see his love to such an extent that when we pray, John, 17, John 16 and verse 27, he says, I won't ask the Father for you, but the Father, you can pray to the Father himself because the Father likes you. So I just want to encourage you. Don't stop now in praying. Keep your heart uplifted because there is power in prayer, not because it changes God, but because God loves this planet so much that he has given us the freedom of choice of who will we choose. Will we choose the tyrant or will we choose the God of love? Maria learned that the tyrant is not worth serving. She now loves America and she found Jesus again and she gave her life back to God and she became a teacher, she became a Seventh-day Adventist, and she made a big difference in sharing this story. Friends, there are people that need your prayers. You need the prayers of others. Pray like you've never prayed before because there is power when we pray. I'd like to just close by giving an opportunity for you to pray. If you'd like to just pray on your own, then just go ahead and bow your head at your own chair. If you'd like to pray with somebody else or have somebody pray with you, then look for somebody around you and we could get together in threes or fours. But just plead that God would put that hedge around us from the enemy. Just ask God that he would even teach us how to pray. That he would lead us in interceding for others. That he would give us a heart to pray like he prayed. Father, thank you for your character, for your love for us. Thank you for giving us the freedom to call upon you, the freedom to pray. God, we choose your kingdom. We want to pray along with you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you deliver us from evil? Would you surround us with your angels? And would you fix our our minds on your loving character? Would you fix our eyes on the Lamb of God?
who loved us so much that while we were enemies, He came and gave Himself for us. Thank you, God, for sacrificing Yourself rather than inflicting that upon us. Thank You that that You have given us Yourself. Lord, we accept that today. We ask that You would live out that freedom in our hearts today in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.